Greetings and salutations, all those out there in podcast land. Uh, it is I, Paul Walker, one of your co-hosts here on the Jesus Collective Podcast. And the podcast you're about to listen to is a really special one because it it's from our very own John Hand. John Hand is our spiritual formation pastor here at the Jesus Collective. And I had the amazing opportunity to actually invite him to come speak at the church that I serve at. So yeah, when I'm not doing podcast stuff, I, I am the teaching pastor at the meeting place in downtown Winnipeg. And I needed a speaker for one weekend on a really huge topic, which is enemy love. And I actually turned to John and he graciously said yes. Well, it was such a a powerful teaching, something that just really resonated in our community, something that, that people like gave me a lot of feedback in that. I was just like, this is just too good to hold on to for us. And so I wanted you guys to to just get this opportunity to pull up a chair and listen to John Hand share about what it means to learn to love our enemies based off of the Sermon on the Mount text, Matthew 5, verse 38 to 48. So I'm excited for you guys to get to do that. And let's head over there right now. Oh, hey, uh, greetings, Meeting Place Church. I am looking forward to this conversation uh, with you. As was introduced, I'm John Hand. Um, I'm uh, part of a network of churches called Jesus Collective, and Jesus Collective is a, it's a network of churches and friends who are really trying to put Jesus at the center of everything we do. We believe there's a renewal of the Spirit blowing us and blowing the church of Jesus towards Jesus to put Him at the center. And I just want to say, uh, in our network— We appreciate you guys. Uh, Paul Walker on staff at your church is a part of Jesus Collective, and we've gotten to know you at the meeting place through Paul. We just want to say thank you. Thank you for leaning into hard conversations. Thank you for being a church trying to put Jesus at the center. Thank you for being courageous in making space for difference and tensions, all the places where we experience transformation and you're leaning into Jesus in this moment. And I just want to say, thank you. Um, I believe that Jesus is the most relevant being, right, who ever lived and who still lives. And at the same time, there's aspects of Jesus' life and teaching that become maybe more obviously relevant at a certain intersection with time and culture. And I think we're in one of those right now. And I think one of the greatest pain points that we're facing in our culture is the pain of not belonging. And I think the relevancy of Jesus intersects with this pain. So here's what I mean. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that across North America, most people these days are feeling like they're on the outside, like they don't belong. Um, You see this on social media. There's this instant access to what everybody's thinking and everybody's feeling and all the ideas and all the information and all the events. And people are increasingly feeling alone, isolated, alienated, disenfranchised uh, from a larger society. And I think if you ask a representative of different subcultures, I think that you would hear this echoed. So I'm going to I'm going to go out on some thin ice. I'm generalizing. okay? so don't judge me too harshly. But I think if you look at, like, say, subcultures, like queer people as a community, 
I think they do not feel accepted by traditional family value people. I think traditional family values people who are mostly white evangelicals don't feel accepted by secular progressive values people. Secular progressive values people feel threatened possibly by fiscal conservatives and political conservatives feel threatened by liberal progressives and their vision of a society. And so we could talk about, you know, the pain and the threat that people feel um, and that was surfacing in COVID. We could talk about the way that that made family members, even ideological enemies. We could talk about how there's an ache of uh, in the Canadian context of indigenous friends, brothers and sisters who through colonization and through uh, just the the process of trying to make them not belong to their own people leaves an ache in that community. There's a sense of not belonging that is creeping into all of these subcultures so that everybody feels disenfranchised from the broader culture like they don't belong. And it's into this hot mess that Jesus comes to us 2,000 years ago and enters a scene in history with a message that literally begins to revolutionize the world. And I believe that Jesus saves civilization. He saves civilization. His revolution of love is something that saved civilization and is still saving civilization if we will embrace it and let him do this. And so in this place of not belonging, where tensions rise, where families are becoming polarized and enemies, where people are becoming resentful and skeptical of the other, into this revolution, Jesus enters. And not only does he die for us and resurrect to show that this love is more powerful than hate, more powerful than greed, more powerful than polarization, it also is based on what, not only what he said, but what he did. So Jesus said three powerful words, love your enemies, love your enemies. Can you say it with me? Love your enemies enemies. Can you, uh, I know this is rude, but can you point at somebody next to you and say, love your enemies? Good. So we are in Matthew 5. We're going to go to verse 44. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, when you read this, uh, there might be a tiny part of you that's like, come on, Jesus. Like, we know how the world really works, right? Like, we know it doesn't work this way. We know that, you know, Jesus was an idealist. I'm being sarcastic. Because we, we know that Jesus himself knew that this love your enemies was out there, even for his day. And there's no other way of being, I believe, that differentiates us more as Jesus people than enemy love. Not that it makes us better than the rest of our culture, but this teaching of Jesus, if it doesn't make us different than the rest of our culture, then who are we following, right? Right? And so where else do we hear this love your enemies? 
besides Jesus? Where else do we hear it? You don't hear it in politics. I mean, can you imagine a politician on a national scale standing up and saying, my political opponent is wrong, I disagree with them, but they're a great person, I respect them, they're smart, and you know what? We should love them. <laughs> like, can you imagine? It would, that person would never get elected because you can't say love your enemies if you're a politician. You can't do it. What about social media? So there's lots of people on social media tattletailing on each other. Um, it's like calling each other out. It's like kindergarten, like all over the place on social media and dragging each other through the mud. What about um, pop culture? So maybe in pop culture, there's a slight, say, um, openness to tolerance. And I think the, the left and the right would both say, we should tolerate people. We should tolerate everybody, except people that we think are not tolerant, then we don't tolerate them, we just cancel them, right? Like this is happening all over and it never ends. And so Jesus names this resistance that's in us to loving our enemies. So we start in verse 38 of the passage, and then you see it echoed again in a different way in verse 43. You've heard it said, but I say. And Jesus is saying there's this impulse in our bodies for retribution, retaliation, and rejection of our enemies. And in fact, he's quoting in verse 38 this axiom that's quoted three times in the Old Testament, but it's also the oldest, one of the oldest moral axioms that was floating around the ancient Near East, and Jesus is quoting it. It's called the Lex Talionis, and it's the law of tit for tat. It's this uh, law that we find in ancient literature that says if somebody harms you, you then can and should do the same harm back to them. Tit for tat. I grew up in the south of the U.S., and this law was used, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law was used to justify retaliation, to justify the death penalty. And Jesus comes into this, and he says, nope, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And he says, no because he knows how this reality plays out in the human heart. He knows how it spills out into the world scene. He knows that this is something that is uh, necessary for our survival, but it's hard. He goes on in the passage to list some of the reasons why those in his day might not find this to be something easy to do. And he, lay, he kind of lays out three case studies for how to apply enemy love in very difficult situations. So let's go to verse 39. At the top of these case studies, Jesus invites us to not resist an evil person. And this is a, a trigger maybe statement for you as you read it. Don't resist an evil person. And if we hear this out of context, we think, well, what is he saying? Like be passive, just sit there and like not care. Watch people abuse other people and stand by. Watch people abuse us and stand by. Like what, what is he, is he saying that? No. What is he saying? Well, 
This same idea of like, don't resist an evil person is Jesus' way of saying, don't use the same evil on the person that's doing the evil. He's saying the lex talionis is maybe not Christian. And interestingly, what he instructs us to do then as an act of resistance is, is to differentiate the evil from the person. So differentiate the evil action from the person doing the evil. There's a difference. To preserve the possibility of loving the one doing the evil, we have to differentiate that person from the evil that they're doing because he's not telling us to love evil. He's saying, don't love evil, love the person who's doing the evil, and there's a difference. Which begs the question, who is your enemy? If we're not to love, right, the evil, but to love the enemy, the person, who is your enemy? Uh, when Jesus was writing this, he's writing to, or saying this, he's speaking to, on the Sermon on the Mount, a group of oppressed people. This was a marginalized, oppressed people. Jesus was a marginalized, oppressed person. And in this people group, they were ruled by the nightmarish oppression of Roman colonization. And so when Jesus says, love your enemies, like instantly no one was like, who's my enemy? Instantly they were like, oh, I know my enemy, it's Rome. It was obvious. But fast forward to today, many of us might think, well, who's my enemy? And maybe not think of somebody who's like actually our enemy because we don't, we're just not living in that same pressure cooker necessarily as the first um, people that Jesus was talking to. And so if we zoom out a little bit and you say, well, who's my enemy? And if you're not coming up with somebody, that's a good thing. But the Latin etymology for enemy literally means not friend, not friend. So do you have anybody in your life who is not a friend and you would like to keep it that way, right? Who's the unfriend that you want to keep them that way? Um, that's an enemy. Uh, somebody said, a, an enemy is somebody who threatens my sense of security and inner peace. Like our brain will interpret those who threaten our inner security and peace as an enemy. So if you think about it, who threatens your security or inner peace? Um, if this is the case in, in my life, my neighbor's dog is my enemy because he threatens my peace at night when he's barking. So anybody here have any enemy dogs in their life? Or if you expand the circle, when you look at this, like who are the people who represent with their presence and their power, somebody who is a threat to your security and your peace of mind. In this definition, the circle could widen now to friends, family, coworkers, people you go to university with, people you go to high school with. Like it really does broaden the definition of who these people could be, not to mention the big E enemies like Putin or drug cartels, right? So in this moment, can you picture who that person is who might be your not friend? Maybe it's a person or a group of persons. Maybe it's somebody who your peace of mind and your sense of security would be greater if there was less of them in your life. 
Verse 39 continues. In the ancient world in Jesus' day, slave owners would be um, beaten, sadly, by their slave masters. And they would beat them with the back of their hand. So in verse 39, in this case study, uh, in that culture, if you wanted to belittle somebody and exert power over them, you would come up to them and hit them with the back of your hand across their face. And this was like giving them the finger, or this was like doing what Will Smith did to Chris Rock in the, in the Oscars. It was a way of saying, I'm powerful, more powerful than you. And in those days, ironically, uh, if you were fighting somebody in a fist fight, but of the same class, you wouldn't actually use your backhand. You would use either your palm or your fist. And so when Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek, if somebody hits you and you turn the other cheek, and they're going to hit you again. They would have to like really contort their body to try to hit you with the back of their hand. Most likely, they're going to impulsively hit you with the palm of their hand or their fist. And in that way, it's saying, if they hit you a second time, they're hitting you as an equal. This is like an act of resistance that Jesus is saying that they can do without doing violence to the person that's attacking them or hitting them. And so Jesus knows a secret about evil. He knows that evil feeds on fear of evil. And this is how it gains power. But what, but what, we, what do we do if, if we don't give it power? What would happen if we don't give it power? Um, what if we resist evil, but we love the person behind the evil? So Jesus says, if they hit you, Turn the other cheek, they hit you like an equal. This is his way of saying they can't take your power. They can't take power over you. They don't have the ability to do that because evil feeds on the lie that it can take your power. So your power, your worth, your value, it is not that flimsy. It can't be stolen by evil. And so evil can't take power but it can take your comfort, it can take your castles, it can take even our lives, but it can't take our worth and it can't take our dignity because that comes from Jesus. That comes from a deeper place where we are made as image bearers of the divine. And Jesus says that's where our sense of power, our worth, our value comes from. Hitting them back keeps evil in circulation. Case study two. Verse 40, in the ancient world, there's all kinds of class injustice. And there was predatory lending behaviors in the ancient world. And part of the predatory lending is somebody who's poor now owes somebody who's rich. And they can take them to court and they can literally sue them to take their shirt off their back. They can sue them for the shirt off their back. And in that culture, the shirt that they're referring to is the tunic. It's mentioned in the scriptures. This is like an undershirt thingy that's like a blend between a shirt and an undershirt and underwear because they didn't really have underwear like we have today. And so what they did was they would wear this shirt. Then over top of that, they would wear a cloak. This was like a heavy robe that they would actually wear and sleep as their sleeping blanket at night. And in the law, you could not take and sue somebody for their cloak, but you could take their shirt underwear thingy if you wanted to. I have no idea why they would want to. I don't make up the rules. I'm just here to tell you about it. So in that culture, 
um, Jesus is saying, if somebody takes you to court for the predatory lending and and they're trying to get your tunic, take your cloak off as well and hand it to them so that you're standing there in court naked. Awkward. But that nakedness exposes how egregious the greed is that, that they manifest, right? And in that culture, it would bring shame to stand there naked. It was an act of resistance nonviolently to expose the powers of greed and evil, but to do it in a way that kept power and agency and worth and value to the person. It's fascinating. Case study... Number three, verse 41. And this may have been the most painful one for them to hear when they're climbing the mountain with Jesus. And that is the Romans had political power over. The Roman soldiers could come to somebody's house. They could make them, make them a meal just on command. They could also compel them by law to carry a, a heavy pack with them, 1.6 kilometers by compulsion. And so Jesus says, if this happens to you, then do what they say, but then carry that same pack another 1.6 kilometers and do this out of a spirit of generosity, but also this is an act of resistance because the first one they're compelling you to by law, you're a slave. The second time, the second kilometer uh, or mile, 1.6 kilometers, the second time you're doing that as a free person and you're showing them that you can overcome their compulsory evil with good, that you are able to transcend out of a generous spirit and show them that they don't have power over you, that they can't treat you that way. It's a brilliant act of resistance on Jesus' part. It's creative, it's revolutionary, and the more we study these ways that he's advocating that we resist evil, the more we realize that Jesus is calling us to be the circuit breaker. Evil is like a circuit. It has to be broken. It needs a breaker. We have to take evil out of circulation. These are ways that he's inviting us creatively to resist evil while accepting and loving the one doing the evil. So I want to look at a few implications for us for today, okay? There's, there's three. The first one is evil can take your, your power. You say evil can't take your power if your power comes from Jesus. So notice evil and your enemy can't take your power because your power doesn't come from them. As I said before, our worth, dignity, and value comes from Jesus. If we're getting those needs met in him, we can overcome evil with good. We can transcend it. In this passage later in Matthew 5, like 46, 47, Jesus is saying this kind of love is miraculous. This is not natural love. This is supernatural love. And the greatest evidence for the reality and the divinity of Jesus for Christians is that we would love our enemies. This is one of the greatest apologetics for the, the truth of Jesus in our world, the relevancy of Jesus in our world. And that he's joining, he's calling us to join him in this revolution of breaking these cycles of, of evil, taking it out of circulation. And he knows it's not going to be easy, but it's possible. And so the second implication is that enemy love can only be sustained if we are cross-shaped people. 
if we are imprinted deeply with the cross. So when it comes to this revolt against evil and working to take it out of circulation, we look not at just at we we look not just at what Jesus taught. We look at what what he did and who he was. And Brian Zond, whom I'm heard, I'm sure that you've heard quoted uh, in your church many times. He says, the cross is where Jesus absorbs evil by forgiving it. And in his resurrection, he recycles hate into compassion, mercy, forgiveness, and enemy love. We won't take evil out of circulation and love our enemies if we think that we are somehow superior to them. And the cross doesn't discriminate. This is where God's mercy is demonstrated equally to sinners and saints, to the just and the unjust. Uh, Romans 5 says that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. When we were unfriends with God, what does he do to win us? He dies for us on the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says that the cross is not the private property of any human being, but it belongs to all human beings. It is valued, it is valid for all human beings. Everything depends on this, that whenever we meet an enemy, we immediately think this is somebody whom God loves. God has given everything for this person. I'm included in that. I'm somebody who is in need of the cross myself. And if I'm in need of the cross myself, I'm... I'm gonna have a harder time hating my enemies if I'm seeing myself as somebody who has received something that they need, that we are both people in need of the cross. This is a way of humbling us because we cannot love our enemies if we think that we are superior to them or that we have some kind of self-righteous moral indignation. Like we'll never love our enemies, we can't do it. But the cross levels the playing field. And there's so much more that we could say. There's so much more that's being left unsaid in this talk. And I, like, Paul Walker's gonna have to come in and clean up after me, right? He'll have to, like, come and explain what I didn't say. But the third thing is that I want to draw us to is I want us to look at this practice of praying for our enemies. So prayer is where we practice learning how to love our enemies. So enemy love is the miracle that's made possible by opening up ourselves to Jesus in new ways. And in this passage, Jesus not only gives us a vision for enemy love, but he gives us the mechanism for how to love our enemies. And in the passage, he says, how do we love our enemies? We pray for them. And the reason for this is he knows something about us. He knows the human heart's ability to bond with our hate, to bond with our resentment of our enemies. He knows that there's a bodily and a chemical thrill that comes to us in our bodies that we feel when we feel righteous hate or resentment against somebody who we think is our enemy. He knows this about us. And so he's inviting us then to chip away at that dynamic that would help us separate those feelings 
from his feelings for us and his affection for them. And that we would then join him over time to see our enemies as he sees them. And this is what prayer does. Prayer's humiliating in the best ways. It humbles us. It puts us in a place of receptivity that we would have to reach out to Jesus and put before him our enemy and then to begin to pray for them. Not to pray that they would die, but to pray that they would be blessed because that's what the passage does. He goes on to say that the sun shines on on the just and the unjust, right? Like God's generosity and mercy extends to everybody. And if you took six months and you prayed daily for your enemy, that you would see them as God sees them, that they would be blessed, that they would be transformed, it would transform you in a deep and a profound way. And you would over time take on the purpose for which you were created, which is that you would become like the Father. You would become like the children of the Father, like my kids are becoming like me for good and bad, but we would become like God for good. This is the process. And maybe as we wind down, maybe it's not words that are, that are needed. Maybe what you need is not more teaching or me to say more. Maybe you need to encounter Jesus in the process of this. And I want to invite us into a spiritual practice that we would be cross-shaped and cruciform people. And we're going to create a sacred space for just a few minutes for you as you're listening to reflect, to receive, to release. And I don't want to force this on you. So if the idea of you loving your enemies is so overwhelming to you that you're feeling it in your body, you're just not capable and you it's like over, you just can't you can't imagine how it's possible and you're not even at the point where you could. I just want to say if that's you today, God's mercy and grace does not wait for our readiness and our ability. You are loved as you are right now. For those who are willing to take a step towards enemy love, I'd like to invite you to do an inventory of the attitude of your heart. So take your hands in front of you and make a pointing finger and and then ask yourself as you look at this, is the attitude of my heart a pointing finger? Is it the attitude of self-righteousness, superiority, when I compare myself to my, my enemy? And then make a clenched fist and look at this fist. Just stare at it for a minute. Do you hold on with clenched fists to hurt because it feels good? Do you hold on to anger because it drives you and it's become a part of you? Do you want Jesus to remove this from your grip? And if that's the case, I invite you to do that. To invite Jesus to remove this anger, remove this resentment, this superiority from your grip and release you. And then I'd like you to make a cupped hand like this. And I want you to feel this posture in your body. You can feel it. it. You feel like a beggar when you do this. And this is the posture of need, of the receptivity of God's mercy for yourself and love for your enemy. And in this moment, can you receive a word, a phrase, 
that Jesus might have for you that would help you to release and open and to receive the mercy that you need to extend to yourself and to others. Can you receive? From the pointed finger to the clenched fist to the cup hand, and now I want you to open your arms to take the shape of the cross. And on the cross, Jesus releases you and forgives you. And now will you do do that for those that you need to release and forgive who are your enemies? And I invite you to mimic Jesus with your arms open. So can you do that? Just try not to hit the person next to you, but your arms open to, to feel that posture. To pray that they would be released into the care of God and blessed. We are not talking about not holding people accountable. We're not talking about overlooking justice. We're not talking about that. That's not what this is in this talk. That stuff matters and it's important. What we are talking about is letting go. And maybe sometimes the person we need to let go and receive forgiveness and mercy is you. Maybe you are your own enemy right now. And maybe you need to receive for yourself this love that we find in Jesus that is waiting for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us this word. We receive it. Help us to receive it. I pray this word would revolutionize lives at the meeting place and that you would continue to do this work of saving us and saving civilization through enemy love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Welcome back, Jesus Collective people. You've just listened to John Hand teach on enemy love. And now we're actually transitioning to a different part of something that we do at the meeting place, which is every Sunday we have a Q&R time, question and response. And we actually invite people, whoever would like to, to text in questions for the teacher to engage in real time. And so that's what John did when he was a guest in our church. And we're going to transition to that section right now. All right, John. <laughs> that was, oh, we can even hear you. That's good. Um, all right. So, thank, first of all, thank you so much for being with us. You've, uh, you've traveled a great distance digitally to be a part of us, to be here with us this morning. Thank you. Um, hi, hi, Meeting Place Church. Good to see you. He can't see you. Maybe, uh, I don't know if turning you around is the best idea. I'm going to, you can just it's see. A, don't worry about it. You're I'll stuck, just, with, you're stuck just, with me. Yeah. I get it. I, I get. I get to see your beautiful face. Yeah, it's. I've been told that it's very beautiful, and I appreciate you saying that. Yes. Um, You're welcome. You're welcome. All right. So I have a few questions here. Um, here's one: If we are to differentiate evil actions from the people inflicting evil, how does this play out in the context of pacifism versus war? Is it biblical to defend the helpless by utilizing force or violence? As someone who grew up in the Mennonite Brethren Church, I have always struggled with these seemingly conflicting concepts. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks for an easy one to start <laughs> off with. That's, that's great. Appreciate that. That's, uh, that's good. Uh, yeah, this, this is a challenging one, one. This whole topic, as we are applying it to corporate uh, applications, so nations, armies, 
that individuals are a part of governments. Um, you know, this is a very difficult, it's just a very difficult and touchy topic. So I just want to say there's a variety of perspectives on this. I'm going to own what mine is. Um, so just to skip right to the hot stuff, right? Are we to stand by and do nothing while watching somebody else be the victim of oppression or violence or hurt or harm or something like that? And I would say, no, pacifism is not passive, it's active. And I think that's what we see Jesus trying to offer us some alternative imagination in the three case studies, that this is active. But when it comes to defending the helpless, uh, I'm, I'm gonna say, I'm, I'm gonna wrestle with, the default is we don't use violence, but is there a time when it's needed? I would say, um, I'm going to stop somebody, right, bodily. I'm going to put myself in harm's way, at risk to myself, to keep somebody else from uh, harming somebody who is helpless. So can we start with throwing ourselves in harm's way? Uh, that would own violence for us while stopping them. Does that mean somebody might get hurt? It does mean somebody might get hurt. Um, that's a very different mentality, though, than my first impulse is to pull out a gun and shoot somebody to kill them. Like, that's, that is a lack of creativity. And, and so as a first impulse, could we not make that our first impulse? Could we try other things? Uh, that would be my dodgy way of trying to answer this question. All right, thanks. I, I, uh, there are no easy questions here, I, I just gotta say. I didn't, uh, I didn't anticipate <laughs> any, no. All right, I'm gonna combine two here. Uh, thank you for the definition of enemy. Something I've been confused about is that some of my so-called so enemies are Christians. This really bothers me. Somehow they are a threat to my inner peace, maybe a personality clash, but yet they love Jesus and I love Jesus, so what is the issue? How do we love uh, toxic people or people that, that we just don't get along with, uh, not wishing evil on them, but it seems best to avoid them? Yes. Avoid them. Did, <laughs> there's one with an easy answer. Of, like, we are, enemy love does not call us to, say, intermingle ourselves with toxic people who can't handle our trust well. So does that mean that we... Uh, need to, you know, gossip about them and slander them and, and, you know, shove them to the side, removing them from our heart's capacity to hold as a human being to pray for their best. No, but it does mean that I don't, and you don't, as a way of enemy love, it does not necessitate that we are then best friends with them or putting ourselves in a toxic relationship where we are being harmed. And really, it's not even about us. If we're going to do this a Jesus way, I'm not going to put myself in a relationship where I'm giving a toxic person the opportunity to harm somebody else with their toxicity. That's why I'm building a boundary. Do you notice the difference? One is to protect me. The other is to protect them. I'm first going to see them first and try to protect them from hurting me as a way to protect them from themselves, if that makes sense. We are secondary. They are primary. Love Love puts others first. And so uh, as an impulse, we can still protect ourselves as a way of putting others first. 
a lot of questions about how, how the idea of loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you uh, doesn't necessarily change anything with the reality of how the world is around us. We can be unsafe in society. We can also be unsafe in our relationships if our first reaction is to, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute. How do you, how do we protect ourselves from, from actual dangerous situations? And how does this change the world around us? Like how does this living this way change the world around us? Yeah, uh, so let's go with protect ourselves uh, first, just writing that down. And then how does it change the world? Uh, yeah, the first would be, I, I, this, is, so this teaching is kind of rated M for mature. Like when you look at uh, different groups of people, let's say civil rights, or when you look at like how Gandhi was inspired by this teaching to love enemies, there was both in the civil rights movement and then in the revolution that Gandhi was a part of the nonviolent revolutions. There was always a uh, invitation, not an obligation, invitation to voluntarily put oneself in harm's way to the for the sake of breaking the circuit, the cycle of evil and taking it out of circulation. Um, so I am not advocating that you are to go put yourself in harm's way. What I'm saying is those who have taken this seriously as a part of social societal change and movements have put themselves in harm's way in order to break the cycle, in order to expose the foolishness of evil and the violence of evil. And so we have pictures of people in the civil rights movement praying in sit-ins and then being beaten while they're praying and not retaliating with violence and exposing the evil of the person with the baton hitting them. So um, that is a that is a thing, but that's kind of rated in for mature, and that's by those who are called to that. Uh, how does it how does it change the world? It changes the world because uh, you drop a bomb on me, and then I drop a bomb on you, and then you drop a bomb on me, and then I drop a bomb on you, and then you drop a bomb on me. Does that ever end? It, it only ends if somebody has the biggest bomb. And now we're holding peace out of a sense of, of fear that somebody will drop that big bomb on all of us and kill all of us. And I'm, I contend, um, rather than living on the theoretical and the meta, that we as individuals choose to live our lives in a way that absorbs evil and replaces it with good uh, in our own hearts first. And that means just maybe forgiving your child or forgiving your spouse because sometimes they are the enemy or forgiving yourself because sometimes you are the enemy. I think if enough of us are doing this, and I think civilization has shown when people do this in enough momentum, it does lead to societal change. All right. Uh, here's another question. Thinking about that mm -hmm. quote from Brian Zond, Absorbing evil by forgiving it alongside Jesus's call in this passage to pray for our enemies has me curious. Should we be praying for Satan's repentance and could God forgive that much evil? No easy questions here, John. <laughs> I, that's a new thought. I've never thought we should be praying for, praying for Satan, say evil personified, praying for Satan's repentance. I think, I think, um, 
there is the cross is Jesus is God's way of saying there's nothing there's no there's no place where evil cannot be exposed to the light to goodness to love whatever we want to call it I, I think it's inexhaustible so yes let's pray that Satan repents yes let's pray that evil because we know we have to um, we can't forget that we actually are privileged with the end of the story. So like, let's all fast forward to the new heavens and the new earth in the end of revelation. We know how this ends. So when we are working with Jesus in the present, we're working towards the Christian hope that evil will be like extinguished, that everything right, say everything wrong will be made right. Everything broken will be whole. Everything splintered and fragmented and harmed and abused will be healed and mended and restored and renewed. That's that's the hope that we live in. No other uh, frames within our secular culture are going to hand you that kind of hope. We just have sentimentality, but we don't have confidence. So we're heading that way. Let's let's put that into practice today in small and large ways. Mm-hmm. All right, I got one more hard question for you here. How does separating the evil action from the person differ from the phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner, which is often used against the queer community? Yeah. Well, I, I hate that phrase, hate the sin and love the sinner. Um, I don't think it's helpful. I know what it's trying to do, but I don't think it's helpful. Um, so in the case of the queer community, like we are just in this passage would say the same. We're called to love people. We're called to love the righteous and the unrighteous ourselves. We are that. <laughs> we are We are the walking righteous and unrighteous um, at any given moment. So uh, when we are called to love our enemies, we're called to also love everybody on top of our enemies. This passage is just particular to enemies in this case. The queer community are not the enemies of the church. And so we are just called to love them, period, and allow the Holy Spirit, because they're not, you know, uh, Solzhenitsyn said that the line of good and, even, good and evil runs down the middle of all of us, including the, including the straight community, including the queer community. We are all, like, walking with that line running down the middle of all of us, and the journey that you're on right now, that I'm on right now, is the journey of which part are we going to feed? Are we going to feed the part of us that is about us and absorbed in retaliation, rejection, and retribution of our enemy and ourselves? Or are we going to feed the part that absorbs and recycles by forgiveness, by enemy love, by grace, and if we can live in that posture of grace and feeding that side of us, uh, Jesus can work out all of the other things that are beyond us and above our pay grade. <laughs> Thanks so much, John. Uh, please close our service with a blessing. Sure. Um, would invite you to stand as we go and as you do in at the meeting place uh, to put put your body in a place of receptivity, a posture of humility uh, that acknowledges that you are lacking what it takes to love your enemies, or maybe that you feel that lack. And I, and I want to say, if 
you are feeling the pain or the strain of needing to love your enemies, I want to relieve you that you can't do it or you can't sustain it, but that the power of Christ is in you. The hope of glory resides in you, that that power through the power of the Holy Spirit will animate you through your willingness to love those who have cursed you or threaten your sense of security and peace. And so may you go in the power that you have, that it's in you. May you receive what you already have in a new way, that you can love your enemies as a conduit of God's grace through you. May you also learn to love yourself in the process as a reflection of the love that Christ has for you. And may you be healers of this broken world in some way as you're being healed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, go in peace. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to check out JesusCollective.com where you can find more resources and upcoming events, learn about getting involved through partnership, and donate so we can keep offering content like this and engage more people and churches around the world. We'd also love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and feedback. You can drop us a message on social media or email us at connect at jesuscollective.com. Until next time.